Welcome to the Donmar on Design podcast series. I'm Kate Tiernan, and this is our opportunity to talk in depth with some of the UK's leading theatre designers. Donmar on Design is a festival celebrating the power of design in theatre and the designers who make it happen. I wanted to start, Fly, by reading a quote, um, uh, a quote from you. Um, it's from an interview in 2017, where you say, um, you have two hours to bring people in from the outside, distract them, poke them, and offer them a memorable experience. <laughs> I love that. Um, tell us a bit about, about that quote, and do you still feel that way today? Yeah, I think um, you do have that. Um, I guess you've got a responsibility as a designer to... Yeah, entertain, nudge, make people feel. That's probably an updated one from when I said it. <laughs> Don't forget to make the audience feel something. Um, whether that's, uh, yeah, I think um, whether that's a sort of a scene change that you can put emotion behind or something, um, which I feel like there's one in Caroline or Change. That was that was one where the whole set, spoiler, if you haven't seen it, coming to the West End. Spoiler um, It uh, splits in the middle and it's sort of like a big rupture uh, between the stepson and the mum and uh, and also the maid Caroline and the family and her friend Dottie and all of that so there's there's ways in which you can make the audience feel uh, through design without sort of spelling it out you can make them yeah and you said it's coming back so when's it coming back it's coming back in uh, November to the <laughs> which theatre is it <laughs> Um, it's coming back uh, in November to the Playhouse Theatre in the West End, which is really exciting. Great, yeah. exciting. Um, and to kind of go back in time a little bit, um, do you want to tell us a bit about how you, obviously you studied fine art and you... Um, art and design. Art and design. Um, and you spent some time living with your grandparents who were, car one was a carver and one was a painter. So did you kind of come from, was what was... What was your childhood like, kind of growing up, and what what role did kind of art play in that for you? Um, basically, yeah. So uh, me and my mum and my aunt and my brother all lived at my grandparents' house, um, uh, and it was a kind of magical place to be brought up in. Not many people get the luxury of knowing their grandparents, let alone being sort of taught and educated by them in the sense of you know they have a lot of spare time um so yeah grandpa re like when he retired he started to do carpentry so uh, my brother is now a carpenter carpenter joiner and a builder uh and my granny would paint and teach me to do things like that and sit down and you know show me how to use pastels uh and my mum was a photographer so she had you know the eye uh so yeah it all sort of filtered in that way but really uh yeah it was just creative um but yeah don't know <laughs> and was there a particular um kind of moment when you you know growing up you knew you wanted to pursue theatre design or no <laughs> no there wasn't uh basically at RADA I was uh a really great uh, theatre technician, not. Um, I 
try my best <laughs> um, at rigging and being a sound engineer. And actually, I very nearly became a sound engineer. Um, and during that time at RADA, you get uh, you got a uh, one week um, design course to do with. Um, you know, you get given a play and you're told to design it. And all of yeah. us technicians were sort of like, oh, okay. Uh, and weirdly, it drew from everything that I'd been doing up until that point. Um, from like you know at college when I did an art foundation and all the stuff with drama and A levels and all of that, it all suddenly came to a head and I guess that was the moment I realised that's what I wanted to do because I was just really uh, I really went for it and I was sketching and I didn't understand technical drawings still don't um, and uh, yeah that was the moment I think and the head of design said you should go down the road to Motley once you've graduated here and yeah got in so yeah that, that was. That was the moment I think that I realised that it was a career. No one actually advertises set design or costume design as a career. Um, so yeah, I guess in a way I fell into it, but not, you know. And that sort of like love of the sketchbook and mm. of um, drawing and creating um, and making sounds like it was a really core cool part of, of your growing up. Mm. Um, and what part did music and sound play for you in um lots my my mum is like an amazing pianist um and we had this clapped out piano uh so there was always music in the house and she would always play records a lot of abba <laughs> sad to say um <clears throat> and i guess it's in the blood my dad uh was like an opera singer so you know he went all around the world in his in his ute um and so I think music has definitely been a triggering factor. I use some music in um, when I'm trying to design and I get stuck. Um, I listen to a lot of Philip Glass and like Einstein on the beach, which is like numbers, lots of repeating of numbers. Um, but it gets me into a, like a weird trancey rhythm. Um, but yeah, uh, I often find that some music can help inspire things for sure. I remember for Streetcar Named Desire at the Royal Exchange, um, <clears throat> I kept dreaming about uh, if you like pina coladas and singing in the rain, <laughs> that song. And uh, so much so that Sarah Franklin, who was directing it, was just like, oh my God, stop banging on about this song. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but it has to be in the show. Like, I'm obsessed with it. And it ended up being a whole sequence. And Pete Rice, the brilliant sound designer, put it in and did all this amazing, warpy, echoey number to it. And it's just that thing of, you know, I do think sound and music go so hand in hand with design. And I, I struggle. Well, I don't struggle, but I do get far more drawn to things like opera or plays with live music or musicians um, or bands or orchestras or anything like that or a play with songs or um, so straight plays aren't normally my um, go-to but that's not to say that I don't enjoy doing that. And recently a Bulgarian choir as part of um, yeah. Pericles, yeah. what was that like? Oh my gosh, the London Bulgarian choir, they were extraordinary as uh, so they were part of our cameo groups uh, for Pericles. Um, and we also had um, a gospel choir, Faithworks. They came and sang uh, during the shows as well. Um, it was just beautiful. And I remember the first time they came into the rehearsal room um, and we had our over 200 cast members um, who are, you know, made from a lot of different community groups, all in this, you know, bundled into this um, uh, rehearsal room. 
And Emily Lim, our extraordinary director, said, why don't we just, you know, welcome to our London Bulgarian Choir and Faithworks, let's just, you know, hear them run through the song the first time before we run the whole sequence of that scene with them in it. And it was electric and uh, it was so moving and it was sort of incredible because they're not from a theatre background, but you're still um, so moved listening to it or performing with it or... Um, creating around it that you've got these incredible talents and voices that are just so guttural or you know in the gospel choir so you know sense just uh, yeah just sort of heavenly voices um, that aren't theatery it was just it was something of real life and culture like just entering that room which was really moving and really exciting there should be more of that <laughs> yeah yes yeah. definitely definitely um and when you were growing up were you part of a choir or was singing kind of collective like family singing a part of your um childhood or not no I totally rejected it <laughs> <laughs> because it was so sort of like my mum my dad they met in a choir my mum was a singer my dad was a singer my dad has a choir now um but yeah, it's it's in the blood, but I just refused to sing. <laughs> and my brother was made to go in a choir, and he hated it. My little brother now, um, uh, yeah, he, oh, I won't talk about him. <laughs> no, basically But something no. about the kind of collective um, yeah. voice is really, sounds like it's really evocative in your work. Yeah, that, that is really key, yeah. 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 Um, and tell us about your first object that you've brought along today. First object is a photograph, um, and it's of me. I think I'm about seven. Uh, I'm in bed, and my mum's taken a photo. And my mum would always document things like bedrooms or breakfast scenes and stuff like that. So I think that's gone into what I do, for sure. Um, and she's caught me sort of either going to bed or just waking up that I've created this mad con you know, construction in the middle of my floor um, in my bedroom um, we this is so this is once I've, we've moved out of my grandparents house so it was just me and my mum my brother and uh, we basically didn't have very much so you know creativity comes out of um, necessity I guess and we were all the better for it because I just created these mad shapes so on the floor is a plastic bag and then um, a pack of playing cards that I've splayed out around what looks like an old hat box or something or a cake box and then a tiny miniature cabinet and then on top of that is um, another little cabinet and then the lid of the hat box and then lots of elephants because I was obsessed with elephants <laughs> So there's all these mad little like China elephants, plastic elephants, all sorts that I found. Um, and on the top of that is a sign and it says, um, this is the house of Eddie the earwig. So I found an earwig in my bedroom and decided to make him a castle. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I've got a synergy with bugs being like, my nickname is Fly. So I think I always have to rescue tiny little creatures and make them castles. I love it. <laughs> How long did it sit there for? Do you know what? I've got no idea, but I do it a lot. Um, and there, were, there I've got other photos of the fact that uh, I used to have loads of crayons and uh, I'd make them into families. <laughs> so, like, uh, I've got, like, big, big blue crayon was Sandra. <laughs> she was a single mum. Sandra, blue crayon. she had loads of little crayons. Uh, but, yeah, they would all be families. Like, I, I don't think I'm on a spectrum. Like, I don't know, I'm on a colour spectrum. But, like, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. It's, it's yeah. interesting that you talk about colour day, because for me, mm. um, when, I, when I think about your work, I think about it being bold, about being conceptual, playful and colourful. And colour, for me, really, um, yeah, is really striking in your work. Um, is there is there one particular piece that comes to mind where that played a really significant part or it, it felt like a bold move to use colour in a particular way? Yeah, I think um, uh, probably Streetcar again. That, that was a bright green floor. Um, and again, I think I, like many people, or people that don't, I don't know, maybe don't realise that they have this reaction to it, but sometimes with colour you have a an emotional response to sort of like you know synesthesia or something like that but it's not as strong as that I don't feel sick at the thought of you know Sunday is equals brown or something like that um but yeah again it was like the kind of um if you like Pina Colada's that song it was just the fact that the colour green kept smacking into my head whenever I was reading it and sometimes I can't justify the things of why they come into my head and then they end up in the design they just feel like the right thing um it felt like streetcar felt a bit like a game there was a lot of gaming in there um so it felt like a little bit like a pool table um you know it's kind of the artificial um color of nature there's so much child nature through it um yeah and then what else do we have we you know that's just a, a snippet of that color what that color means to me but the prudes recently at the royal court yeah prudes <laughs> that i mean the lighting in that as well yeah. was just exquisite yeah. yeah that was lit by dear shaheen who's recently passed away but mm. um yeah he lit it beautifully yeah. and it was it was uh the the creation of the mad the mad world of wonderful anthony nielsen and all his words so it was um again that was something that whenever i mean we didn't even have a script for quite a long time you know that's how anthony works and when we kept talking about things um pink and um in you know our intestines and our inner workings you know and all that um prudishness um yes came out in the color pink and what what you know what we are on the inside and all the kind of inner fleshiness um and so it's like putting everyone in a giant womb or you know if you want to be more graphic anything else that you wanted to read into it um making the whole of the upstairs of the court into this sort of billowy womb-like pink environment with a big shag pile carpet and it was all you know you want to take shoes off and i think theatre should be a little bit sensory whether it's yeah touch smell taste blah 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 all of mm. that yeah mm. Mm. and that um process of collaborating in in making um theatre and in designing what for you are some of the um you know looking back over the last 10 years or so what are some of the collaborations that that feel like they've been um really fruitful in your development artistically or um, in the work you're making now? Um, I think always uh, Ellen McDougall, <laughs> wonderful Ellen. Um, we did Glass Menagerie together and um, that just kind of, um, I guess, personified the whole of our motley training, which is, you know, what's, what, you know, what is the least amount that you can use to tell this story? Um, and we really did, and it was so elemental um, and pure, and it still stands out as one of my favourite productions that I've ever created with, with someone. Um, and 
it's it's essentially a big grey box. I love to put people in boxes and feel like you know that is life. Uh, and then also what happens when nature and uh, you know things that we can't control invade that sort of space. So we had it uh, rain inside the box, and um, you know we had Erin uh, Doherty and Greta Skaki uh, playing the characters, the mum and the daughter, sort of getting rained on, and kind of they looked like these little dancing figurines in a music box that are just getting drenched and there was very little other than light um, to 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 um, like little lampshades um, just being lit in the space and then a big street lamp over it and I guess like yeah I've talking spoken about two Tennessee Williams plays I guess yeah, there's a lot of poetry in his in mm. his work and I love to um, decode lots of things and you know things that have repetition in and, and there's so much in in his work especially um yeah it's quite funny and what is um your sort of starting place in that kind of decoding process or that reconfiguring and dismantling whether it's you know beginning with the text or with the sound or light you know mm. um what's tell us a bit about your your kind of process um I think uh, it's it's become more shorthand over the years. It used to be quite um, slow and quite methodical and quite uh, moment by moment. I would be you know storyboarding once I'd read it three times, and now I've started to get a little bit quicker at these things. So I'll be reading it and I'll instantly have a gut reaction, whether it's a word or a color or a sound or a or a song or something, and I'll scribble that in the corner of the of the text. Um, so that is the first start of the process, the first bit of the process. Um, I guess, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's seeing, for me, it's seeing what repeats itself or are there any um, sort of anomalies there that, you know, it's like in an opera, is there a little break of music that can be your way in, you know, as a designer to inject a bit of, you know creativity at a moment which will help tell the story you're not trying to tell the story but you'll help you know support that moment whether it's a feeling or a surreal moment or something so I think it's sort of looking for those little breakout bits in the text or music that you can just sort of inject something that creates that piece to kind of get to a, an extra level I think um, that's the bit that excites me so yeah I'm, I'm hunter of those bits basically yeah yeah and that process um you you don't have a studio um and said you do a lot of your work from home and obviously home growing up sounded like it was a wonderfully creative colorful brilliant place to be making um is that where you know do you feel like one day you want to have a studio or is it it was very important that kind of domestic setting for making for you is that where you feel um uh, most comfortable <clears throat> yes <laughs> i've got like <laughs> need to cough um <coughs> um yeah i have to be really comfortable to work um so today <laughs> i was basically we are sound and very comfy yes yeah, right now. Uh, very comfy and i was in my pajamas for most of the day modeling up um, lab om that i'm designing with max webster for um, gothenburg opera house 
and I think it's that thing. Do you know what I read? I read an interview years ago. It was about it was about Charlotte Church, <laughs> and uh, she used to do her recordings in her slippers, and uh, that stuck with me because I was just like, I do that. I don't record opera, um, you know, but uh, I I basically have to feel so at ease with the fact of what I'm doing, especially the bigger the shows, the more comfortable I have to feel because otherwise these things can feel really big and daunting and scary and you've got got to kind of remember that it's just you you're in your pajamas and you're still the same person you're still the same designer yes you will evolve and get better and your tastes will hopefully um, progress but essentially it's still you you're the one with the ideas and don't get overwhelmed by it and just yeah remember that um well I went to see um Chile Gonzalez the other day um at the South Bank Centre, and obviously he plays in his slippers yeah. and a dressing gown. So you're in good company, That's I it. think. Exactly. You know. Good vibes. Yeah, it's good vibes. It's good <laughs> vibes. Um, so tell us about your second object. What are we looking at here? Second object is actually a model box. So I tend to keep bits of model boxes because often it takes so long to make these things, or they have a bit of you know memory to them. Um, and this is uh, I'd rather Goya had. Uh, wait, what's it called? It's <laughs> a really long sentence. <laughs> um, so this is the model box of I'd rather Goya rob me of my sleep than some other asshole, and uh, Jude Christian directed it at the Gate Theatre, and still to this day uh, is my the show that gave me my break. Um, it symbolises the graft uh, of getting out there as a young designer and just you know that awful word of like emerging like I feel like mm. I'm constantly emerging um but like yeah it's so many years of just doing anything possible to you know any shows zero money knackers the amount of times that I nearly quit um as every designer will have gone through um I used to build my own sets terribly you know um but it was the kind of time when suddenly we had a production manager, suddenly we had a team, and we had people actually making something for me. And uh, we were just really proud of it, me and Jude. And Jude, um, basically, I had never met Jude until the interview. And I like to think that we fell in love uh, in that interview process. And uh, <laughs> we are very happily together, not as a couple, but as mates. But we do call each other wife. She's <laughs> saved on my phone as wife. Um, and uh, I just was so excited about Jude's brain and how she processed things. And I loved the fact that she sort of said very early on, she was like, well, I want to do a show where it's cool that, you know, it's what we're doing is there are two children in the show but I'm going to use piglets instead of children because I don't want children on stage I want something that is really unpredictable and um, if they create a mess then the actor has to clear it up and that to me was just like crack not crack shouldn't say that that to me <laughs> that the to crack. me was the crack yeah it was grand um, that was really exciting so yeah the model is essentially a uh, white box Every designer loves a white box. Love right? a white box. Love Tell a white us about box. the little pigs. Um, so the little pigs, they are made of tinfoil. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, I should say they're pink, though. So they, they are pink, pink yeah, pink. they're made of tinfoil. Lovingly painted. Oh, lovingly painted. And the rest of the set is um, clean and white. And it was about a dad, a single dad, that was sort of struggling to cope with having these two unruly children just needing to 
uh, be fed and looked after and entertained. Um, and so how we sort of capsulised that was uh, encapsulate, encapsulised? How yeah. encapsulated? Encapsulated. <laughs> encapsulated. Yeah. <laughs> Encased, encapsulated. How we encapsulated yeah yeah let's go with that <laughs> how we encapsulated that was by putting this uh, kitchen on the back of the um on the back wall and it's a sort of miniature kitchen so he became this sort of giant that was sort of you know he had these giant hands that had to make sandwiches um and he was really struggling with everything and the um kitchen would also turn around so it was a bit like a washing machine so this guy was just turning it and churning and daily grind and he couldn't escape so it was a little bit like a, an institution but really yeah it was just that it symbolises okay I'm, I get that I can now have a bit of a budget and I can mm. be conceptual and that's what I have been choosing to do um, with uh, stories um, that's what makes me tick basically, it's not getting too bogged down with fussy detail and stripping that out sometimes you need fussy detail like in the beginning that I did um, that was absolutely naturalism that is hyper real and that I loved So, but those gigs don't come around that often that something needs that level of um, uh, attention and uh, yeah, reality to it so yeah, that's a really good question um, what's um, how do you find working on a really really huge scale working at you know the national when you've got an you know in enormous space what is what is that like uh oh work so yeah i guess i can sum it up with the fact that when i walked into the olivier for day one of tech when we suddenly saw lights and stuff and you know the whole set was complete and um our company walked on on stage in their costumes um that was really emotional um because and uh i had a cry that day quite openly uh um i say quite openly i mean i'm saying it openly but i went to the toilets and had a cry it's <laughs> <laughs> the place of all good it's the cries. place of all good cries um echoey so uh yeah it was um that to me was sort of like oh gosh this is this is happening and um so yeah graduated in 2009 and it's just been such hard work and constant and that you know I guess the Olivier for me lots of people have different theatres I've got a couple of theatres that are like my mecca like you know that you really strive to work in and play in and the Olivier was the kind of massive church of a place that um is so moving that you suddenly see your work from miniature to oh my god, Nami has made this and it's at the National with um, extremely talented people that have created all these things for us um, to play on and uh, me and Emily Lim <laughs> were sort of looking at each other throughout the tech, just having a moment and going, we're teching in the Olivier. Anyway, like, you know, because we actually felt like kids that, you know, we've been allowed to do this. Mm. And I remember Alison Chitty, who was head of Motley and who taught us um, who's a legend um, she said I always wonder about the day that they'll find me out that I'm not good at my job and I'm, I don't know what I'm doing and I remember her saying that quite fleetingly once in one of our presentations because you know we were all bricking it having these you know weekly presentations and 
it's always been such a comfort because even the you know biggest chiefs in design you know have those moments where they feel like yeah they need to be in their slippers and uh, get back to reality because it, it can carry you a bit and feel quite scary and really daunting it's terrifying like especially getting into the model for the first time and you feel like you have to deliver something enormous if it's a huge uh, venue like an opera house or yeah or the Olivier and people you know say oh the Olivier it's a barn good luck and you just kind of go well cheers any other advice <laughs> was uh, there was there something about um that being the first in the public acts kind of scheme or series mm. that the national are doing um where the the cast was made up of I think it was 200 kind of amateur actors alongside um a cast of you know, professional actors, um, that seeing your work um, speak to and be part of a collaboration which is quite unique in a venue like the National Theatre, um, was, was, was that, I'm, I can imagine that kind of adding to the emotion in a way if we think about, you know, the, in a sense, the kind of the audience being on the stage in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, what, to come back to that question of who, for you, um, is theatre designed for mm. in in your in your practice? It should be for everyone. Um, it should be that you can bring your um, young children, you know, uh, f- five year olds, uh, and it should go up to you know one hundred and five year olds. And that's you know our cast had such a diverse range of ages. It was extraordinary, um, and uh, that is what it should be about. And I feel like. It was so moving watching and being part of Pericles, both both in the rehearsal room and uh, as a as a show, that you it felt like a little snapshot of humanity. That yeah, the audience is absolutely replicated on stage, and you know there's that lovely parallel happening. It doesn't feel imbalanced, and I think that's why it was such an incredibly warm audience, and it meant that our company most of which had never been on stage before, were able to get up there and deliver speeches, which to even actors would be quite a terrifying prospect because, yeah, it does have that um, quite imposing quality about it, the Olivier, but they did it. We had, you know, really diddies, you know, singing solos and all of that. And, uh, yeah, it should be it should be for everyone, really. And what do you think are some of the important characteristics for a designer working today? Stamina. <laughs> Definitely stamina. Um, without it, you, you, it won't happen. Um, you have to take the um, knockbacks and the fact that uh, you just have to keep going. And it's really hard and uh, you won't land in a really big venue straight away. And it's a rite of passage almost to go through the fringe. I've done it. I yeah <laughs> built a whole set for the Edinburgh Fringe and no one told me that it had to go up and down stairs and <laughs> get, get it in in eight minutes I'm like what um well I'm going see you later <laughs> good luck guys um yeah and yeah take responsibility for your designs that's what Alison Chitty used to tell us so yeah that was a good good rule um uh yeah so stamina and um enjoy the ride I think is what I would say you have to enjoy it you have to love working with directors and different types of directors and you have to love actors and you have to love um, your lighting designers and sound designers and movement directors and how they interpret that space and 
when you get those collaborations and relationships right, God, you don't let them go. You want to marry them. It's probably why I called Jude my wife. You know, and Ellen's <laughs> another one. You know, but um, and I'm probably going to marry Emily Lim. <laughs> um, so yeah, when you find it, it's it's really special. So it's all about being open to how different people work and getting excited by that. And you know, directors have very different brains, and it's lovely. And like, yeah, Polly Finley, I'm working with um, a couple of times, and she's so rigorous, and that's a, a different way of re- working. And I absolutely love that because she interrogates things so deeply, and you get playful directors. And uh, Max Webster's one of them who you know loves a live band, um, mm. you know, and all of that, and. Um, yeah, that's the joy. You've got to enjoy it. You've got to, yeah, it's a long race. Okay, that's great. And tell us about your third object, or your third, your, your um, place. Place. Um, it's, I mean, quite simply, it is Brockwell Park. <laughs> which I is know what, it well. Yeah, it's a good park. Um, I live uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes away from it. Um, and yeah, so I work from home, um, always have. Um, I think I always will until my brother builds me one a studio in my garden (laughs) which will never happen at the rate of of like housing prices Mm. anyway um, uh, yeah my place is Brockwell Park so it's um, it's the place that I go when I am stuck designing um, or when um, I just have got nothing (laughs) Which doesn't happen too often, but when it happens, it's it's very um, hard to continue being in your studio and trying to work. It's like writer's block, you know, you no shapes, no colour, no shading is happening in your head. Um, so you need to go somewhere where there is no clutter, there is no sense of your life as a designer or your life as a human being, um, and you just go somewhere that's green and has trees and that really helps me so I think um, as design is quite a solitary um, role sometimes um, but you've got to learn to enjoy that so I've learned to enjoy it because you can get very um, yeah very suffocated by trying to constantly design and get loads of work out and be really um, uh, what's the word? Um, productive. Productive, yeah. You're trying to be productive, like constantly, and you have, you get the guilts if you walk away from your desk, and that's really bad. Like it's okay to walk away from your desk and breathe, and so Brockwell Park for me is that place where I just listen to music, or I just don't listen to anything, and I just wander through it, or I just sit there, um, and just remember to declutter and breathe and. I don't know, it's quite simple, isn't it? But I think it's important to remember that you have to burst the bubble of design sometimes. And the fact that part of its virtue is the fact that it makes you escape from reality and all the horrors and the things that you can't do anything about, uh, you know, are happening. And you can delve into all these amazing worlds and you can create them and you can be the kind of the god of these worlds as a, you know, giant. Um, And yeah it's really important to just remember that reality exists and um yeah get a bit of perspective because i think you learn that gradually from becoming a young designer to an an older designer um yeah yeah. i was going to ask you about that actually Mm. because obviously a lot of designers who've 
reached the success that you have um, have come through the Lindbury Prize or have sort of, you know, um, that kind of route. Mm. Um, and obviously that isn't a route that you took. Mm. How, um, how have you found that kind of coming into the industry um, in slightly, maybe a slightly different way or? Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know, all these paths are different and you can all get to the same end point. Just um, the awards and the um, accolades and things like that do mean that you can kind of jump a few of the a few of the steps, which is brilliant. Um, I didn't. <laughs> I took the long road, Frodo. Uh, <laughs> just trudging my way through Mordor here, uh, wearing so some great rings. Though great so. rings, so many rings. Uh, yeah, all the rings of power. There they are. Um, <laughs> so I think I think for me, I'm I'm you know now love a bit of hindsight. Love love the fact that I have done that journey um, because I just think that it. I'm just incredibly grateful for the fact of where I am and hopefully where I'm going. Um, and it informs lots of things. Um, just I mean, just, I don't know. Every, it goes back to the slippers, but it's that thing of oh god, I've got to design this huge thing for this huge um, opera house or this huge um, playhouse or whatever. Um, what, how am I going to do that? Uh, and I think you go, right, what did I do when I was in the White Bear <laughs> Theatre in Kennington? The and Bear. Yeah, that was my first show. Yeah, yeah. And I was paid £100, which to me was like incredible. I was like, someone's paying me to do this? <laughs> Amazing. Um, uh, and what did you do? And you have to tell a whole story and it was set in the 1800s and you have a cast of seven or something ridiculous. And it's, you know, uh, yeah, loads of costume changes and you've got about, genuinely, about 200 quid as your budget, if that. Um, and I think, for me, it's always been so crucial to hark back to those moments whenever I feel overwhelmed that I have to create something much bigger because it all applies and it goes back to like you know my object of me in this mad box creation that I made mm. out of nothing um, because you can create lots of things out of very little and you can story tell with very little and sometimes less genuinely is more and uh, one item on stage can tell a hell of a lot more than cluttering it full of stuff um, and it, it made me learn about sort of being conceptual and and you know that word minimalism you know I, I don't use it lightly it's I get quite bored when people say oh you're a minimalist designer I'm like, not really I'm just like I just don't see the point of distracting the audience with all these other things when actually the actual object that I'm really interested in is that lampshade that's on you know on the floor and that's gonna say so much more than you know loads of shelves full of crap that whatever um but yeah that's just not from the school of training that i've been from come from and uh the school of training of life uh with zero budgets um but yeah it applies to everything yeah pericles it's just a big gauze curtain and a ramp really <laughs> it was a hell of a lot more work like you know but to put it simply in bait you know in its basic form you've just got to let things breathe and you've just got to sometimes let your design ego take a back seat and just let your um, 
actors be the architecture and all those sort of slightly cliche phrases but it's so true because otherwise you just you've got to sort of frame things as a designer you don't have to overload things and clutter things and I think that's why yeah Rockwell is my decluttering space um, to let the synapses happen you know and fuse and electrify and that's what hopefully decluttering a stage does is let the audience kind of let their thoughts bounce around and let those words just ring out and you hear plays in such a different way when you don't have lots of stuff um, so if you've got less budget sometimes it's a virtue and um, I often pretend that I don't have any budget I mean amazingly I still go quite over budget <laughs> as we all do but um, yeah I think it's just good to pretend that there's what is what is your budget fringe version of this you know multi-million pound opera that you're about to do um, because you don't necessarily need all the stuff you think you need um, and that is why I'm just yeah I'm, I'm glad I took the, the long and winding road <laughs> to get here. You've been listening to the Donmar on Design podcast series. Visit donmarwarehouse.com to find more podcasts with our world-class theatre makers.